If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 44. If you don't have one, that's all right. You can read along on the screens. We'll have the scripture up there for you today. Um, but Genesis chapter 44. So, uh, man, it's been, it's been a few months, but we have worked our way from Genesis chapter 12, where we started this series, uh, all the way today, uh, through today, where we will end the book of Genesis, and we will conclude and see what, how this story uh, finishes, at least for this part of the beginning of the rest of the story of the Bible. So today we're concluding our series, A Family for the World, and uh, I am glad that you have stuck it out with us. I hope you've enjoyed seeing and learning about uh, the story of Abraham and his descendants and how the Lord was building a family truly for the rest of the world as we're going to conclude that today. So before we dig into that, uh, let me pray uh, for us. And I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but at the end of the service today, we will um, be voting on our annual budget for 2022. So we presented that to you two weeks ago, and we had a Q&A session last Sunday morning. Um, and so today we are prepared to go ahead and vote uh, uh, to affirm the budget for next year. So we're going to, um, dis we're, we'll dismiss sort of uh, at the end of my sermon, we'll sing like we normally do. Um, but if you are a guest with us today, um, I totally get it. If you want to slip out during the closing song, uh, no hard feelings. We totally understand if you don't want to stick around for the business session that we're going to have at the end of the service. It'll be short and sweet, so if you do want to stick around, you're more than happy to. Uh, you're more than welcome to. Um, but as we sing our closing song today, um, if you want to exit, we will have our First Impressions team uh, out in the lobby to greet you on the way out and answer any questions you may have about Kernan. But thank you again for being with us today. So let me pray for us, and we will dig right in to Genesis 44. Lord, thank you again for your grace. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we conclude the book of Genesis today, that you revealed to Moses so long ago, uh, God, that you, would that you would use that to reveal to us today through your Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts exactly what it is we need to know about you, what we need to know about ourselves, and what we need to know about this world as we go out into it to spread your gospel. So give us great wisdom and faith as we study your word now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you remember last week, we left off uh, at the end of chapter 43 with Joseph and his brothers having dinner together in Joseph's house. Remember that? Uh, they still don't know who he is, though. All right, so he still has not revealed his true identity to them, but they are kind of getting close to that point. You can feel the suspense. You can feel the tension with them having dinner in his own house, right? Remember, Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt. He is very powerful. So why in the world would the brothers who sold him into slavery so many years before, why would they think that this is their 17-year-old brother all grown up, right, who's now powerful in Egypt? As far as they know, he is dead. So they have no clue that this is their brother. But that brings us to chapter 44. So look in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to kind of walk through this story. We're going to skip a few parts because we got to get all the way to chapter 50 today, okay? So we're going to, don't worry, we won't be here that long. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to go from chapter 44 all the way to chapter 50, so we're going to skip around a little bit. But uh, chapter 44, starting in verses 1 and 2. Here we go. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, 
in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, maybe you have a favorite coffee mug, right, or a favorite cup that you like to use at home. Apparently, Joseph did too, right? This was his cup, right? Nobody touched my cup, all right? So this is his special silver cup, right? A chalice probably of some kind. He tells the steward of the house to put it in Benjamin's sack, all right? So here's one more test, right? He's already tested his brothers before to see if they would be honest, to see how they would treat Benjamin, and now he's doing it again. One more test from Joseph, right, to make sure that his brothers who have betrayed him before, have they truly changed? Are they now trustworthy? Have they really had a heart change over these years? And last week we saw, yes, yes, there is evidence of true heart change in these brothers. They were once cruel. They were once vicious, right? They didn't care. They were indifferent to Joseph's well-being in his life. But we saw last week there is evidence these brothers have been changed by God's transforming grace. But Joseph is going to give one final test. So he hides his special cup in Benjamin's sack, the youngest brother, to make it appear as if he stole it, right? So the brothers, what do they do? Well, they leave Egypt, they, or they, they start to leave Egypt they, uh, to return home. And, and so Joseph sends his servant behind them. So the servant catches up with the brothers as they're traveling, right? And so sure enough, the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, right? So they search and they find it. And so they return back to Joseph and Judah, Judah takes the initiative to speak to Joseph on Benjamin's behalf. In fact, Judah offers for himself to be punished in the place of Benjamin. Look at that. That's in verse 33 of chapter 44. Now, therefore, this is Judah speaking. He says, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. So this is remarkable because you know who Judah is of the brothers? Judah is the one who so many years ago, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery and make a profit off of his brother. Look at the transformation. Look at the change. He went from not caring at all what happened to his younger brother to now willing, ready and willing to completely sacrifice himself, to give up himself for the sake of his brother's life. So here we have Judah. Seeing, we see this amazing transformation so that his brother can truly be free, he is willing to essentially give up his own life. Now, do you see God's hand at work here, right? And hey, don't tell me, don't tell me that God cannot change somebody. Don't tell me that God cannot change the vilest of sinners because, I mean, this was bad. I mean, Judah was evil. He was wicked. He sold another human being for a prophet, his own flesh and blood. He could not have cared less 
about what happened to Joseph. But look at how God has changed him through the years, through all the difficult circumstances, all the ups and downs. What was the Lord doing in Judah's heart? He was shaping him. He was changing him. And Judah repentantly, right? He is repentant here. He is sorry for what he's done. He is trying to make things right. That's evidence of repentance, right? You see a truly repentant Judah and you see God's hand at work. So if someone is truly repentant, as Judah was, as Judah was, God's grace can and will transform that person. So this plea from Judah, what does it do to Joseph? It stirs his heart. It it just wrecks him. His emotion he is emotionally kind of drained, I think, at this point, because he has been through so much. And these tests of his brothers and and, and trying to to see if they're trustworthy, to see if the Lord has changed their hearts. And now he sees it. I mean, we come to the climax here, to the pinnacle of this story, where the brother who sold him before now stands and says, take me instead. And and Joseph can't handle it. And and he weeps, he weeps and he cries. And after all these years of, of complete dysfunction in this family and the lying and the deceit and the regret and the bitterness and the turmoil after all the pain look what happens next chapter 45 verses 1 through 4 then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him he cried make everyone go out from me so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it and Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph is my father still alive but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence so Joseph said to his brothers come near to me please and they came near and he said I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt Man, talking about a shocker. There's no way the brothers saw this coming. They had to be completely shocked and just standing there with their mouths wide open, not knowing what to say. So Joseph, he he reveals his true identity. But what he says next may be even more shocking. Look at verses 5 through the first part of verse 8. Joseph continues saying to his brothers, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. I mean, did you hear that? I mean, what reaction should Joseph probably have given the brothers who hated him and essentially ruined his life by separating him from his family forever? What What would you have done? (laughs) You know? And what do you think maybe Joseph dreamt of doing to them? I mean, there was no bitterness here. 
no anger, no wrath, no blaming, no grudge, no, I told you so, I told you I could do it, look at me now, right? None of that. Instead, we see humility, we see grace, we see forgiveness, we see trust in the hand of God direct, directing the circumstances of life. And he tells his brothers, he tells them he wants them and their families after this. He says, I want you guys to come live with me, right? He said, I want, I want you to come live with me in Egypt. I mean, that also is shocking. I mean, I love having family over for the holidays, but I've never once said, hey, why don't everybody, y'all, why don't y'all move in with us, right? <laughs> Nobody's saying that. But Joseph, he's like, hey, why don't y'all just move down to Egypt, right? And he tells his brothers, he says, I want to provide for you during these next five years because the famine, remember, it was going to be a seven-year famine. So no food around the land, right? He wants to preserve his family. He wants to save them. So chapter 45 Verses 14 and 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all, of his, all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And I kind of like how simply it's put there in that last sentence. After that, his brothers talked with him. Brothers just talking not arguing, not yelling, not regretting, perhaps, maybe, some regrets there, but just talking as brothers should do, as family members should do. And what a shocking and powerful moment. By God's grace and through true repentance, restoration has actually happened. And those were the two ingredients needed for it, right? The grace of God and the humble repentance of his servants. You put those two things together and you have reconciliation. You have restoration. So in the following chapters, here's what happens. After years of thinking his son was dead, Jacob, Joseph's dad, they're, they're, they are reunited together. And the family does move to Egypt. And Jacob will live with his sons for the next 17 years in Egypt before he dies. And that brings us, if you'll skip over to chapter 50. So chapter 50, 17 years later after this great reunion with Joseph and his family. They're all living in Egypt now. But here's what happens in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said... It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So even after 17 years of living in Egypt with Joseph, the brothers still, they still have this underlying fear that maybe Joseph was being nice to them because their dad was still alive and he didn't want to upset their dad. But now that their dad has died, the brothers are all concerned again that maybe Joseph is going to finally get back at them, finally attack them or get his revenge. But look at what Joseph tells them. 
verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Man, that is grace. That is deep trust. So Joseph, he would go on to live another 54 years. And in verses 24 through 26, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so ends the great book of Genesis. But the story's not over. This story has set the stage for the rest of the storyline of Scripture to play out. But what, what can we learn, though, from the end of this story today, particularly in these few chapters we looked at? Well, I think there's one big message that we need to see that's happening in the lives of Joseph and his brothers being reconciled together, and it's this. God is working every circumstance out for our good and his glory. God is working every circumstance out for your good and his glory. Now, I want us to see how this is possible in this story first. Genesis 45, if you look back at chapter 45, verses 7 and 8, notice the language that Joseph uses, okay? He says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, whoa, 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 wait a second, Joseph. Your brothers mistreated you and they sold you into Egypt, right? But Joseph, after all these years, instead of bitterness and resentment controlling him, and shaping his perspective, there is a greater and deeper trust than we can fathom in his heart that is allowing him to see the picture completely differently and from a different vantage point. He sees the hand of God and his sovereignty, that means his total control and power of all things, working to move the nations, to move this family, to move the history of the world for something ultimately good, to provide for people who are going to suffer during the seven years of famine. Chapter 50, if you look five chapters later, chapter 50, verse 20, he says specifically to the brothers, to assure them after Jacob died, right? He says, as for you, you meant evil 
against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph saw the picture, right? Now listen, it is hard for us. It is hard for us in the middle of a tragic circumstance. It is almost impossible for us as weak humans in the middle of something that we don't like, in the middle of a bad circumstance in our lives, when you are in the thick of it, it is almost impossible for you to say something like this, right? It's hard. It's very difficult for us to say, you know what? I know and I, I just know that, that this is good. Ultimately, that not this, the circumstance is bad. It's, it's bad and it's terrible and I don't like the circumstance and that's okay. But ultimately, I know that God is doing something for the greater good, leading me closer to him, leading others to him, working out his eternal plan. It's difficult to say that. Now, hindsight is 2020, right? When we look back on some of the difficult circumstances of our lives, sometimes we can say, as Joseph did, you know what? I know that that was not a good situation, and I hated it, and if I could go back and change it, I would, but... I see now how God was working something out. I see now how his hand was leading me to a better place, right? And so Joseph, basically he had two ways he could have had uh, or he could have viewed this whole situation. He could have taken that low humanly route where he just soaks in in self-loathing and bitterness and anger and it ultimately destroys his uh, him as a person. Or he could take the higher route where he keeps his eyes focused on who the Lord is and the goodness of God and the power and the wisdom of God directing the circumstances of life. That's the narration he chooses, the reality that he views. Over the years, especially early on, Joseph couldn't catch a break, right? He couldn't catch a break. He absolutely could have been doubting God's goodness and his care and his plans for him. But his perspective, and that's the key word here, His perspective is eternal, is heavenly. The lens through which he viewed his circumstances. It wasn't focused just on what was right in front of him. He trusted that the Lord was in control, that he had a real plan and a real purpose for his life. And Joseph knew that God was great, right? I mean, we don't, sometimes we like dumb down who God is in our minds, as if he's not capable of doing something, as if, if, as if it's impossible for God to do something. We, we have this dumbed-down, small version of God, almost like a, a little God that we create in our own minds that we can control. And I think sometimes we lose sight of how big and great and powerful God is. I mean, he spoke the universe into existence. Do you not think that he could control the circumstances of your life for some great good and for his glory, ultimately. Joseph had that perspective. Now, I said earlier in this series that doubt, doubt is natural. And here's what I mean. Here's why doubt is natural to us. Doubt is natural because we are not God. So what I mean is God knows everything. Okay, the Bible's very clear. That's one of the attributes of God is that he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. He sees the whole picture from beginning to end and everything in between. 
We, on the other hand, our vantage point as humans living on this earth inside of time is very singular, right? We can only see what is right in front of us, one life circumstance at a time. So in that great gap between what God knows, which is everything, and what we know, which is, I'm not even going to bend down that low, but you know, you get the picture, right? <laughs> what, God, what, what God knows versus what we know, there's a huge gap of knowledge there. And so we have a choice to either fill that gap with doubt or trust. We have a choice to admit, and this takes admission, right? We have to admit that our knowledge is so minimal and that God's knowledge is perfect, all-knowing, all-encompassing and great, infinitely great. But we have a choice to fill that gap of knowledge with either doubt or trust. And I think the key there is who do you really trust the most? Yourself or God? Because if you're trusting yourself, then of course that gap is going to be filled with great doubt in what God can do because the trust is leaning towards yourself, right? But if you're trusting the Lord, then that gap is going to be filled with trust because you don't trust yourself as much to handle and to do and to make situations the way you want them to be. We have to release that, that desire for control in our lives and trust the Lord as Joseph did. That's what he did. He firmly believes. He is convinced without a shadow of a doubt that God has been in control of all of this, that God knows something he doesn't know, and that's okay. And as unpleasant and wicked and evil as his brothers were, God's love and wisdom and power has the final word. You know, Romans 8.28 is a verse that in our Christian world we use a lot as we should. And the reason we do is because it is a great reminder and it's very comforting. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that's comforting. That's so comforting to know that God is taking care of his own because there is a purpose and he's working everything, everything out for our good ultimately and his glory. And therefore, ultimately, it's all leading to good things for us as we partake with him in his purpose. And there's evidence of this, of God's sovereignty throughout the whole patriarch narrative that we've looked at through this series. Genesis 12 through 50, Abraham and all of his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. What do we see happening? We see them making lots of mistakes. We see them really wrecking things and just being kind of silly and foolish all throughout the narrative. But we also see at the same time the hand of God graciously and powerfully guiding this family in spite of their stubbornness, in spite of their disobedience and sinful patterns. He, we see them guiding them along, but let me say, not without serious consequences for their actions, right? God does not sweep the consequences under the rug. He does not just overlook the sin. 
there are serious consequences to their sin and great relational damage is done to this family. All the way up to the story of Joseph and his brothers. And speaking of his brothers, I want us to focus back on what Judah said to Joseph about being willing to take Benjamin's place. Look again at chapter 44, verse 33. Remember this, Judah Judah stood up and said, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. You see, Judah was willing to stand in Benjamin's place and take punishment for him. And here's why that's amazing. Because many years later, a descendant of Judah, as Revelation 5 refers to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, that descendant of Judah would stand in the place of his brothers, would take the punishment of not just a brother, but the sins of the world on himself. You see, this little snippet of the Joseph story here with Judah, it is pointing us to something greater to come. It is pointing us to the greatest example of God's sovereignty in using evil to bring about good. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, listen to this. Peter said this when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. He said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus, Peter says, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? of God, the Father. But yet he doesn't wipe away the blame of the people who crucified him. Now you might wonder, how can God bring good out of evil? How can God do something good out of something so terrible? How could God possibly be using the circumstances of my life for anything good for his glory? And I don't want to undermine, hear me out, I do not want to undermine the difficulty that you might be facing right now. I do not for one second, I I do not for one second trying to ignore that or minimize that. God hates evil. He hates wickedness. He is not pleased with it. But I want to encourage you in the midst of whatever trial you're facing, to look to the cross of Jesus for your encouragement. Because it's on the cross that we see the greatest act of evil, the killing of the Son of God, who was a perfect, innocent man, full of love and self-sacrifice and grace. And so he was unjustly murdered. It is the greatest act of evil on the cross we could ever see or imagine. Yet, at the same time, at the same time the greatest act of evil is happening, the greatest act of love and grace is simultaneously happening. Do you see that? It's only on the cross of Jesus that the greatest evil and the greatest grace could happen at the same time. 
that Jesus would die for the sins of the world and absorb the wrath of God for the evil that was taken on him, but yet at the same time, give his love and grace to those who would believe in him. The death and resurrection of Jesus. It shows us more than anything that God has a plan and a purpose. And it is for our good and for his glory. And it's because of that truth that makes passages like Romans 8.28 that we just read so amazing. If you have trusted Jesus to be your Savior, then you are a part of this outworking of his death and resurrection. You are a part of this eternal plan of redemption. Because this plan of redemption doesn't stop here in this life. It's leading to eternal life, to the new heaven and the new earth where Jesus will reign forever. That's where all of this is going. That's where all of this is heading. All of the events of your life and the way God is working right now is not leading you to an end in itself in this life. It is leading you to beyond this life. It is preparing you for eternity. And so Romans 8.28 is so comforting because it reminds us and it assures us just as Joseph was assuring his brothers that everything in the end is going to be okay. That God sent someone to preserve the life of many so that we could be kept alive. Because all things are working together for good. Those who are called according to the purposes of a perfect, infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely powerful God who stands in your place. You see, we will only ever understand the true purpose of our lives when we understand the true purpose of Christ's death and resurrection to create a new people for himself, a new race, a new holy nation. Because that act on the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus would birth a new family for the whole world. God's family, the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 articulates this so well. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you were a slave who might as well have been sold in Egypt with no hope and no future, bound to your sin, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, church, are God's family for the world to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I want to ask you as we close, are you a part of this family? Are you a part of this royal priesthood, this chosen race, this holy nation? God's people for his own possession. Some of you are living your lives with basically no identity. And what I mean is you have no eternal home or future of life with Christ. And so you're trying to build some kind of identity on this earth that you think will last. 
Some of you are indifferent to the truths of who Jesus is and why he came to earth and what he did for you when he stood in your place. But I want to ask you today, where is that taking you? The circumstances of life are difficult. But if you trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and turn away from your sin and trying to save yourself by building whatever life you're trying to build and you turn to Christ, then you can see and you can take comfort in knowing that all things in your life work together for good. You may not see the good that you want to see on this side of heaven. But when we are singing the praises of God and living in perfect peace in paradise a million years from now, this life will just be a blip on the radar. And the goodness of God will reign over us and in us and with us. Are you a part of this family? As we close today, I want to pray for us, and I just want to ask you and encourage you, if you're not a part of the family of God, the people of God for his own possession, would you give your life to Christ? Would you turn away from trying to save yourself and truly trust Jesus to be your Savior? Maybe you are a believer, you're a Christian, you're walking with the Lord, and you're just in a really dark season. And I don't know the details of where you are, But if you're in a really dark season of life right now, again, I am not trying to undermine the pain and the suffering that you're going through. I do not understand, and I don't want to minimize that. But I want to encourage you to look to the cross and know that there is someone who identifies with you. There is someone who has walked in your shoes. Jesus himself has experienced the greatest loss, the greatest pain, the greatest suffering, at the hands of unjust people. And yet, he loves you. And he wants you to know that he's walking with you through your darkness and through this season of life that you don't like. And that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And he is working things out. Ultimately, yes, for your good. And ultimately for his glory. And there is great comfort in that truth. So I want to pray for you, wherever you are on that spectrum. I want to pray that the Lord would assure you of his grace and truth. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to sing this song and we're going to go into our really quick business session. So if you're a guest with us today, thank you for coming. We we so greatly appreciate you being here with us. Um, and we hope to see you. Our first impression scene will be out in the foyer here in just a minute. But thank you for joining us for worship. We'll have a Christmas uh, sermon next week as we continue to celebrate what Christ has done. Would you pray for it, or would you pray with us now? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to earth to rescue us. Jesus, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah who stood in our place and took the punishment on yourself. Lord, so we thank you for the cross that we see the wrath of God punishing evil, but punishing you, Jesus, in place of us. And that we also see the hand of God working this out for good, for our good, Lord, our salvation, and your glory for all eternity.
that you have created a people for yourself to love you, to love each other, and to love this world and spread the message of hope with a lost and dying and dark world. So Lord, let us be carriers of the light. Lord, as your family for this world, let us carry the light of redemption in our lives to our workplaces, Lord, to our schools, to the places we live and interact with others, wherever that is, whatever sphere of influence you've given us. May we be faithful to carry the light of the hope of you, Lord Jesus, in our hearts and extend that to others. Lord, I thank you that you reconciled us to yourself. And I thank you that you've adopted us into your family. Lord, may we be found faithful and humble as we walk this journey with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.